we're looking at uh, Matthew 25, parable of talent. Uh, in Matthew 25, let me just set the table for us since we're jumping into our passage. Jesus is with his disciples, and their time together is quickly winding down. Jesus knows. Maybe his disciples, they're not quite sure, but Jesus knows very soon he will have to leave them for his final mission. And very soon they will enter Jerusalem for the final time. Knowing this reality, Jesus being fully aware of this reality, he teaches them these three parables in Matthew 25. Parable of the lamp, parable of the talent, parable of sheep and goat. And they work as like set. You know when you go to like Emart and there are things that are in set, they're sold together, they work in set. And Jesus is trying to teach these disciples the sense of urgency, but also being good stewards of what Jesus has empowered to them. And these three parables work together to convey an important teaching about being prepared. Because Jesus realizes his disciples are not prepared. He says, you've got to be ready. So let's read verses 14 to 30. Verses 14 to 30. Let me read for us. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents. To another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them. And he made five talents more. So also he who, told, who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and made one more talent. No, he dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Done, done, done. Verse 20. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you deliver to me five talents here. I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he, who, he also who had two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will, be, will more be given than he who have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away 
and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. What a story. What a story. Here are a few contextual observations. I want to connect the dots from our context to the context of the original audience, right? Very different context. So talent, let's talk about talent. When we think about talent, we're assuming like talent show, talents that we have. But in the story, a talent was actually the greatest unit of counting in Greek economy. It was money. And it was the greatest unit of, 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 of counting money in the Greek economy. It would have been about 10,000 denarii. So like, what's denarii? Just give us the dollar amount. Um, according to different uh, stories that Jesus told, different parables about the, the wager and, and, and the field, one denarii in that story was worth a day's wage. So 10,000 denarii would have been a lot of money or a small amount of money. It would have been like 10,000 days of work. It would have been equal to like your whole life's wage. So even one talent. The fact that the guy got, so we, we look at the story, got five, two, one. Even the guy who received one talent received a significant investment. We don't know clearly how much, but I imagine it's millions of dollars. Maybe millions of dollars for us in our context. It's a lot of money, and that's important for us to think about. The idea of stewardship, this parable is clearly about how we steward and utilize our resources in light of relationship with God. The type of investment and return Jesus speaks of in this parable is about transformative impact of reaching others with the gospel. That's also very clear. Matthew 28, a few chapters after this parable, Jesus calls all of his followers to the Great Commission to go and make disciples of the nations, teaching everyone, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. So the focus here is very clear. It's not merely how wealthy, how successful, how impactful you and I could live as Christians in this world, although that's not unimportant. At the core of this parable is about the Great Commission. Not wealth, not success, not effectiveness, but really Great Commission. And third, the eschatological nature of the parable. It was mentioned earlier, these three parables are found at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Last week we were in Matthew 7, the Gospel of Wise Builders. That was at the height of Jesus' ministry. This is towards at the end. And all three parables, the, the three parables as a set, share common theme of preparedness and accountability in light of anticipated return of Christ. Jesus is talking about when he leaves and when he comes back, will you be prepared? It challenges us to live with a heightened sense of purpose, eagerly anticipating the return of our master. Now, three observations. Those are minor contextual things. Three observations, and I'll walk us through the parable. One, uniquely gifted. Two, excuses exposed. Three, unconditionally loved. Gifts that we receive, excuses that we make, unconditional love that we need. So first, uniquely gifted. Very clear from the story, God entrusts each of us with unique gifts. The worship team. 
who hasn't played drums in like 13 years. It's amazing today. I'm like, oh my, you know, like yesterday was over at my house. It's like, I'm really nervous. It was amazing, right? I could never do that. I, I mean, I can't even, when I clap in the front, I'm just nervous. Am I cl- clapping like on the right beat? I'm just like, okay, let's just get everyone going so they can just follow me, right? But it's amazing how gifted, like Joey's leading worship, people, hospitality, being able to serve. We know we're very uniquely gifted, each of us, not only with talents, but with resources. Just like the parable, the distribution of talents reflect God's intentional design based on our abilities. The master knew, okay, this servant, he's going to be able to handle five talents. Well, this one, he might barely be able to handle, I guess the master took a chance. Kind of knew what was going to happen, but he said, maybe he could take one. We are all uniquely created in the very image of God, and the gifts are unique to each of us. And again, the three servants in the story are given different amount of talent. And first two immediately went out and put the master's money into action. Three verse found in verse 16, describing these two servants, illustrates the essence of discipleship. The verbs are moving out, going to work, and winning. Moving out, going to work, winning. All three verbs make clear that discipleship, according to Matthew, is not a passive endeavor. In fact, it requires intentionality and proactiveness. We've been talking about this throughout this year, right? Idea of being rooted as people of God. How do we do that? We need to be intentional. It's not a passive endeavor. Bruner, the, the, commentary, the commentary I've been using to help me through this study, Bruner says, according to Matthew's gospel, waiting for the Lord is not a fact of religious inwardness or a unique fervor or even prayer. We assume waiting for God. We assume, oh, it's praying. Brunner says, no, it's not that. It is an act act of living engagement that mobilizes the believer in the invitation of risky initiatives. It's a risky business to be following Christ. Friends, following Jesus, putting his words into practice, obeying the voice of the Holy Spirit, they all require courage not passivity. So much of modern Christianity is about passivity. Even the way we design our service is passivity. So when I ask you to get up, say hello to somebody, you're just like, oh my goodness, I just want to be here. I want to leave. I want to get my coffee and go home, right? But the fact that we ask you to get up in the middle of service, to hello, say hello to somebody, I mean, I had so many people like, Pastor, can we just not do that? That's so uncomfortable. It's, it's not passivity. We, we got to be able to engage. And this is why in the parable, when you see the master's reaction or, 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 or his action, he fully expected his servants to go put his money into action. That's very clear. Even though he didn't give an instruction, everybody except that one talent servant knew that he was supposed to, they were supposed to take the money and put it into work. So verse 20, 23, when the master returns after a long time away to settle his accounts, settle these accounts, when he heard how first two servants have done with his investment, he what? He rejoices. Good job. I've given you little and you did well. I'm going to give you more. 
The one servant who made five more talents, the other with two. Notice, this is important, not one word of his affirmation to both of these servants are different. He rejoices them both in the exact same way. Which means, even if one's work is seemingly on a lower level than others in this life, a lot of times I feel that way, a lot of times you might feel that way, that is not important. What is important is that what we do with what we have been given. What is important is that what we choose to do with what we have been given. And the single greatest goal of every Christian, and I I believe this to be true, people in this room, right, all of us, is to hear from Jesus when our lives come to an end. Well done. Well done, Charles. Well done, Joe. Well done, Jonathan. My good and faithful servant. That's what I want to hear. Second observation, excuses exposed. Verse 24 When the master comes to settle account with the third and the final servant, the man brings back one talent. Telling the master that I dug a hole and I kept the money safe because I knew you to be a hard man. This man does the bare minimum. Mistakenly believing that the master is going to rejoice at his effort. I mean, that's... To me, it's like this guy had no idea what the master had wanted. He's basically saying, Master, aren't you glad that all your money is there? Aren't you glad that I brought back all of your money and nothing is missing? And I kept it safe. I, I, didn't, do, I didn't take any risk. I kept it safe. Here's your money. Where's my reward? Friends, at the end of our lives, when we come face to face with Jesus, I believe we will. We're all going to have to settle our account. And we cannot simply tell Jesus, Jesus, I remained a Christian. Jesus, at least I kept my faith. None of my, all my friends, they left you. I kept my faith. I wonder how Jesus would respond if we said, Jesus, I stayed. I try to be faithful. I'm here. Here's a sobering reminder that our call as Christians isn't simply to maintain our faith. That's one thing I see. It isn't simply to hold on. But again, it is what? An active initiative. It is a call to go make disciples. Again, Matthew 28, it's the call of every believer. Matthew 28 is not simply call of a pastor or an elder or missionary, but it is call of every one of us. To go and make disciples, teaching people everything that Jesus has taught us. And at the end of our lives, we're going to have to give account with that. Back to the man. Verse 24, when the man, the final servant, says, I know you to be a hard man. This is very interesting. I spent hours and hours on this trying to understand what he means. Because I think when I was growing up, I heard this story. I thought, oh, he's just calling Jesus a harsh person or or sees the master as a harsh person. But as I was digging into this word, skelos, skelelos, my professor's here, I'm a little nervous. Skelelos, the Greek word, this is a type of word describing the master. They have two different 
types of meanings. Some of the Greek words, some of the words in the scripture could have dual meanings. And this is one of those words. It could either mean being harsh and severe, like a tough boss. Or it can be also used as means as hard as strong or sovereign. It's describing someone who is fully capable So if you translate the word as harsh, cruel, or unfeeling, the servant thinks his master is harsh, cruel, and and because he lacks empathy, he's saying, out of fear, I hid your money. I didn't want to get in trouble. That's what he's saying. But if you translate the word hard as strong or sovereign, the servant is not speaking against the master's character, actually. He's simply saying, you are far stronger, obviously much more capable than I could ever do with this investment. You have the power to reap where you did not sow, gather from where you, you have no seed. You are far more capable than I, what, what, what can I do with one talent? So he dug a hole, put away the money, thinking, well, you'll do better. You don't need my help. And interestingly, this is what really got me, guys. The master in this conversation does not rebuttal the words of the servant regarding himself. To me, I'm like, what? The master should have said, no, I'm actually a good, good master. I'm generous. I've been generous to you. But he says nothing. He says, no, actually, if you knew me to be a hard man, why didn't you put my, my, my money in the bank? So I could at least gain some interest. Interesting, isn't it? So both translations are plausible. I'm not going to settle on that. And the text does not tell us more. So that's not the point of my sermon here, one thing that is not up for debate is the fact that this man refuses to take responsibility for his own actions. That's very clear. The master showing himself to be nothing but generous from the very beginning. I think about this relationship. Master invites his servants and gives them a ton of money and says, go, do what you want to do. Just make sure you come back with something with more. He's, he's so generous with the beginning. He has entrusted a significant wealth to all three men. Yet the man accuses the master for his own failure. If you read between the lines what he's saying, he's saying, it's because of you I dug a hole and didn't do anything with your money. It's because of your nature, your character, who you are, I decided not to do it. Genesis 3, in the Garden of Eden. God rebukes Adam because he's the man of the household. He's the man that God has put in charge for taking that fruit that was forbidden. What was Adam's response? Do you remember? Perhaps a lot of us, but this is is our response. The woman who you gave to me handed me the fruit, so I ate it. It's not my fault, God. It's the woman. It's this lady, you, you gave her to me as flesh of flesh. This is the lady you gave me. This is her, she told me to eat it. What am I, disobey my wife? Happy wife, happy life. In fact, if you threw out the Old Testament narrative, this is one of the most consistent human tendencies. Inability to take responsibility. I know I do it all the time in my relationship with my wife. Even with my kids, I'm, I'm just like fighting my daughters. Like, it's your fault. Why am I yelling? Because you're driving me crazy. Right? I'm yelling because I have no self-control. 
But I, I see this in myself all the time. When I'm driving, when I'm talking to somebody in my relationship with my staff, just like, well, it's you, it's not me. That was true of Abraham when he lied about his own wife being his sister. That was true of King Saul when he had given improper sacrifice, but he could not wait. True of King David who took another, woman, another man's wife and got her pregnant. We lie to ourselves because lying, I lie to myself because sometimes deceiving myself feels better than facing the reality of who I am. The older that I get, I really, sometimes I really don't like who I'm becoming. So when I'm convicted, when in, our, in my working relationship someone gives me great feedback, I'm just like, well, no, no, that's not me. You misunderstood me. It's because I really don't like sometimes facing who I'm becoming. Anyone? That's me, right? Okay. <laughs> thank you, Jay. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Rest of you guys? All right, just, just wait a few more years. You're lying to yourself right now. Often we deceive ourselves in the most genuine And we believe it's not me, it's them. It's not me, it's my wife. It's not me, it's my husband. It's not me, it's my boss. It's not me, it's my employees. It's not me, it's my kids. It's my past, it's my parents, how they raised me, how they didn't raise us. Those things can be true. It is our duty to take responsibility. And our failure to take responsibility for our failures, they not only impact our relationship with God, they impact our relationship with others. It, it impacts our maturity. Right? When, a pers- when a three-year-old refuses to take responsibility, it's really cute. Usually it's really cute, right? It's like adorable, Right, they want to get you know they want to get out of trouble, and they you know my daughter explains to me like this is why I did it. I'm like it's really cute. When you're 30, and you refuse to take responsibility, it's not cute at all. It's actually really frustrating. But it's because it's not easy to confront our true selves. How do we do that? We'll come back to that. But another thing I, I wanted to talk about from this text, even though it's not explicitly in the text, is about this idea of envy. Imagine being this servant. And I know exactly how, every, how, how many talents these two other servants got. Imagine being the third guy, expecting, seeing the transactions, thinking at least I'll get maybe like two, three talents. He got one. The other guy got five. The other guy, who I'm like, he's not even better than me. He got two. I got one. And I think many of us, we struggle with this when, when, when it comes to the idea of living out or calling being stewards. We have issue of envying other people. What is envy? Seventh grade. I don't even know what year that is. Nine, 90-something. Seventh grade. One of my best friends uh, his name is Idris from Afghanistan. Um, we became friends because we were in the same ESL program, same neighborhood. 
Uh, we play sports together. All of our friends were, were, were our friends. All the girls we liked, we liked together. Uh, we were best friends. And this guy, Idris, had so much natural charisma. Like, I think I have decent charisma. Like, I'm not going you know, to be, like, too humble. I think I have people like me. But this guy, Idris, is one of those guys, when he just walks in the room, everybody loves this guy. He could just do the most dumb thing, and everybody just loves him, right? It's like, it was, and I remember just growing up with him, right? He's my best friend, and we're doing everything together, basketball, all these things. And after a while, I was really, really jealous. I think I was better looking, but, but, but anyway, I, I, was like, I was just really, really jealous of Idris and how everybody that Idris was so great. So one day, we're in same science class. And, you know, we had to do extra work. We didn't do, I, don't, I had to do extra work because I didn't do well in a quiz. My teacher let me come after school and make up. So, so we're in the same science class. I, I do my project. I correct what the mistakes I made. I turn in the, as I'm turning the paper, my teacher was out in the hall. And I see the quiz, I think it was like a project. I see projects, like project papers. And Idris, because he's alphabetic order, his last name is like at the top. I see his paper, his project on the top. Guess what I did? Out of my envy, I didn't even, like, know that was in me, right? I grabbed this project. I hid it from the teacher. I walked out to the hall. I threw it in the garbage can. And that was it. I didn't, like, there's no, there's no, like, I didn't go back to Idris and told him. I didn't tell the teacher. And that, that was crazy to me. Like, how, the fact that how jealous I was. And I wanted, in every way, for this guy to just, like, I wanted to know, like, I'm, I'm better than him. And I, I just remember, like, that's crazy. As a seventh grade, like, I could get, like, suspended for that. But again, I was so envious that I didn't want any, I didn't want to see any more success. Envy is wanting someone else's life. You see someone else's life, you see what they got better. Instead of rejoicing in the good that they, they have, you weep over the fact that you don't have it. That was my envy. When I looked at Idris' life, he had so much charisma. I didn't have that. Pastor Tim Keller says, envy is being at happy at others' unhappiness. And unhappy at others' happiness. That's evil, isn't it? And this is why I think envy in some ways is much more destructive than even greed. I mean, greed is really bad too, but envy, right? Because greed says, I want abundance more than I need. Where envy says, even in abundance, I want to have more than others. And when we don't deal with our own envious hearts, what happens? It quickly transforms into a sense of bitterness, endless comparisons. It not only distorts our self image, but also poisons our relationship with others and ultimately with God. Because why? God, why did why'd you give Idris so much charisma? God, why'd you give Idris such athletic ability? Why don't you give it to me? You don't love me? He's not even Christian. He's Muslim. God, I'm Christian. It tr- quickly transforms into the sense of bitterness. And the third servant saw the other two men had more talent, far more than he was given. And maybe that's why he said, Master, you are a hard man. I don't know. 
So how are we to be rescued from this fear? Obviously, this man had a lot of fear. And this sense of perhaps maybe envy. Again, the scripture does not there. I think that's many of us. That's our struggle. The final point, the transformative power. Transformative power. The common denominator of both fear and envy is what? This deep-seated, deep-seated sense of inadequacy. When you think about someone who's really extremely jealous of other people, when you think about someone who's really afraid of just things of life, when you come, down, when you come to the core of their fear and their envy, it's actually this deep-seated sense of inadequacy. Both fear and envy stem from the same root, the belief that screams, we're not enough. We're not enough, and we don't want to be found out. This means only way you and I to overcome both fear and envy is to experience love that is so profound, a love that is so unconditional, love that is so utterly unattached from our achievements or shortcomings. Only through such profound love can you and I break free from the shackles of fear and envy. Only then we can embrace our authentic selves without constant fear of judgment or comparisons. You walk around in Seoul. You walk around in Jamshir. You go to this amazing mall. People are always looking for a sense of value and identity in the stuff that they buy. You, 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 you realize like coupon and carrot and just the amount of stuff that Koreans buy, like that we buy. According to, like, compared to the number of people that we have, it's amazing. It's crazy how much we buy. This is one of, the, one of the challenges, I think, of our city is materialism. And I really believe it is one of the most powerful, powerful driving force, and it deeply sh- shapes our sense of self-worth. The car that we drive, the clothes that we wear, the gadgets that we own are used to project a certain image to the world. We hide behind these brands as means of feeling important or valued in society. That's why people will stand in lines for days to buy a bag. Not because they, this bag is much better than bag you buy from Dongdem for, you know, like one hundredth of price. Because what? That sign or that Chanel, whatever, gives you oh, that sense of identity. When you walk around, when you go to a coffee shop, you put that bag out there so everybody can see. Because what? That bag gives you some sense of meaning and identity. We hide behind these brands. Yet the truth is, they, these brands and the gadgets and the cars and whatever we own, what they do is they keep us from confronting deeper insecurities and uncertainties about our self-worth. The illusion is that by possessing these expensive, exclusive items that no one else has, we can elevate and validate our self-worth. And you know, companies know, knows this. Like these companies know, and this is how they strategize against you, right? Like, we'll sell this bag for this much. How much price? People will buy it because it's about identity. Yet we all know deep down inside, anyone knows this. These things can never truly be enough to fill the void within. 
It is a bottomless pit. We will always want something more exclusive, something better, something more fancy, something more shinier. And this is why Matthew chapter 26, moments after Jesus teaches these parables, Jesus says what he says. Or Matthew says what he says. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, the parables that he's been teaching, he told them after two days, Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. You guys get this? It is as if Jesus is saying, I know there is a gaping hole between the Father's call and our failure to live them out because of our fear, envy, or whatever struggles. In essence, Jesus is signaling, signaling for us in this passage that he will be the bridge that spans over the profound gap between the just expectations of God and our failure to live accordingly. The profound, unmerited, unconditional love of Jesus, that's the only thing. Not Chanel, not Mercedes, not whatever. It is what? It is the profound, unmerited, unconditional, unearned love of Christ. That is the only thing that will set you and I free from our own sense of inadequacy. It's not iPhone 16. It's, uh, I could go on and on. None of these things. It's not building the better, better version of yourself. It's not having six-pack. Whatever you feel like, well, that, once I have that. Joe's laughing because he's, like, working on that. <laughs> Kidding. Friends, the one who did everything accordingly in the story, right? Jesus is the faithful servant. You see that? He did everything accordingly. He was, at the end, he was cast to the utter darkness. Jesus, like the diligent servants of the story, came into our broken world as one of us. He came to call the lost, broken, disoriented people like you and I. And he was faithful until the end. However, as the narrative unfolds, a moment arrives when Jesus calls out to the Father, 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 why have you forsaken me? And what does the Father do? Father turns away from the Son. As if Jesus was like the terrible servant who did nothing with his life. Jesus was cast away like the worthless servant into the outer darkness of death because of us, because of me. Because of you. So friends, the gospel stands as an invitation for all those who are once unfaithful, unwilling, ensnared by fear and envy. The cross becomes the gateway, the transformative gateway. It is the only thing that will set us free from the shackles that once held us captive. Amen? Amen? National, national. Christ. And Paul says in Galatians 5, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to yoke of slavery. Instead, verse 13, Paul says in Galatians 5, use your freedom as an opportunity to love and serve one another. Let's pray together. I want to give you guys a moment to respond. We have a few topics. We'll give you a moment to pray. First, 
Let's pray for gratitude, acknowledging the uniqueness of gifts and talents that God has blessed us with. Let's ask God to highlight areas of stewardship that we have been neglecting. And say, Lord, thank you for the job that I have. Thank you for the kids that I have. Thank you for my season in Korea. Even though I want to go home, I'm here. Thank you for this season. Let's take a moment to thank the Lord. Repentance is good. Repentance is good for us. Recognizing our excuses and sinful sinful tendencies. Let's ask God. God, would you set us free from these destructive patterns? God, if there's things I need to own up to, would you give me the courage to face myself? Because I know I am deeply loved by you. I can face my baggages. Let's pray together. Let's repent. Let's come before the Lord. Can we pray for our community or pray for your community if you're not from our church, you're just visiting today? There will be a disciple making church. That there is this urgency, that we live with this urgency where it's not about just buying our time or holding on to our faith, even though that is, 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 is good. That the that, that Lord has called us here in this season to be proactive. To take risky, risky initiatives, that we will be bold in the way we love our neighbors, we love our community, we'll be bold in the way we love those that are in need. Can we pray for our community? Let's pray together. We'll be bold in our goodness, we'll be bold in your calling to us.
all of us, God, to know that this our time is, is limited here, God. And all that thing, all of the things, God, they will fade. I will fade. thank you for your generosity in our lives for the so many of us live in abundance more than we will ever realize and Father we repent of our envious hearts repent of our greedy hearts repent of believing the illusion that we can find life in material things in relationships, in our future, in the best version of ourselves, whatever that is, Father, would you turn our hearts back to you to recognize we have only one master. And at the end of our lives, we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. That is our desire. Remind us of your profound love. Only through your love we can continue to live faithfully.